We'll try that again. I know you're still a little bit frozen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Tom, as, uh, as Ted mentioned, and it's, it's a privilege to be here in the warmth as we study God's Word. If you would, uh, turn to uh, our scripture reading this morning. It's Luke chapter 2. Um, it's page 716 in the Pew Bibles. If you do not have your Bible with you, take the one out in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for that to be our gift in this new year to you. And you're welcome then to take it back and take it um, home and bring it back with you when you come to worship again. Uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They then began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand why or what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth and was with them and obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do thank you. And as Sarah prayed, we want to just continue to echo that prayer that, that we would become more and more an outward expression of being children of yours, children of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we grow together in wisdom and stature and favor with you and with man through the study of your word. God, I pray that my words would not be my own because I have nothing to bring this morning, other than to bring something that would further illuminate your truth and your wisdom, that we may be drawn closer to you. And so that is our prayer, and all God's people said, amen. Now, if you were with us back in October, you, you might remember we studied this same passage as part of the Elephant in the Family Room series. It was, it was titled The Myth of Perfect Parenting, and we learned that perfect parenting is a myth. Even Jesus' own parents needed grace as their son grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And, and that's good news for the rest of us, especially those of us here who are imperfect parents or people who are parented by imperfect parents. That's all of us. And, and if that's a message that you need to hear again, I'd encourage you to go on our website. It's the first series on our new website. You can always go back and listen. But today we're, we're in our series on fear. And so we're going to look at the same passage, but we're going to look at it from a little bit different angle as we reflect on the many fears that are associated with being a parent. Now, when I was preparing for this series, I shared in the first week that I asked people what their fears are. And I don't think I talked to a single parent, no matter what age their child is or what season of life they're in, 
that didn't have some fear that was associated with being a parent, some fear with their child. Parents of infants, of course, are often afraid of, of caring for their, their child's constant physical needs. Parents of school-age children worry and are anxious and fear over making the right decisions around opportunities their kids face, academics, sports, even things like providing their braces and other physical needs. Parents of young children fear guiding them on the right path as they enter into adulthood. Even parents of adult children fear for their kids, and I'm not at that season yet, but I've been told by many of you that in some ways that season can be harder than all the rest because when your kids move out, it doesn't mean you love them any less, but now they're not under your roof and they're not there as they make decisions and as consequences in life come up against them. And so for all of us, no matter what season we're in, I love this story. I love the story of Jesus himself and his own parents as they feared for the safety of their child. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my worst fears as a parent is losing my children. I had somebody uh, tell me as they were leaving after the first service, every time I bring this up, somebody has an example of a time where this happened. And if you ask my wife, Alyssa, I'm always worried about this. So you know, we've got four kids. She'll tell you I'm so paranoid as we pull out of the driveway. If it's dark out, I'll turn the light on in the minivan, and I'll make sure I've got at least three of them in the back. So I'm just making sure you're awake. <laughs> That's <laughs> actually what happened, though, in our reading in Luke 2. They forgot Jesus. They, they lost him for three days. They were separated from their son. But, but before we get into that story, I just want to stop, because where I spent a lot of time this week as I was studying what was meaningful to me, and I hope it is for you as well, is, is just the significance of where this passage falls. Now, the author Luke gives us this, this rare glimpse into the childhood of Jesus. If you're looking at your Bible, you'll see right before this is a story from when Jesus was just a month and 10 days old. And if you go after that, what you'll see is Jesus as 30 years old. And so in the middle, we've got one story in that whole span of time, and it's from when Jesus was 12. Now, why is this significant? Well, well Luke is the author of this part of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke. And he's writing, as he says, an orderly account of the life of Jesus, and it's based on eyewitnesses that he met and spoke with himself. Luke himself was not a witness to these things. He's not even Jewish. He's a Gentile. But he lived at the same time and in the same place as Jesus. He was one of the first-generation Christians. He was a travel companion to the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. And he was so excited about Jesus. Jesus had so changed his life that he wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts as a historical timeline of Jesus' life and the life of the early church and it was based on eyewitness testimony. Now now here's why that's important is we get into this orderly almost scientific recollection of Jesus. I've got to assume that if Luke went out and researched this, that like any good researcher, he had lots of stories that didn't make the cut. Lots of stories that there just wasn't enough scroll for. And I've got to believe that if Mary was one of those eyewitnesses because she tragically outlived her son, and, and i got to imagine that if she was one that Luke went and talked to, she probably said to him, Luke, I'm going to give you some stories 
But you know that one story about the time that we lost Jesus for three days? Don't tell them that one. Like, please just don't put that one down. But he did, you know, because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's actually a really good message that needs to be told. And so, so it's, the setting's Jerusalem. And actually, right before this story... The setting is Jerusalem as well. And I want to start there. So right before Jesus is 12, the story that Luke gives us before is that he's a month and, and 10 days old. And, and in that story, they went to Jerusalem at the very beginning of Jesus' life for the purification rituals of a mother and also to present Jesus as their firstborn son to God. And they walked into the temple, and there was this old man. His name was Simeon. And this is what happened. It says in verse 28, Simeon took Jesus in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, you know Luke's a Gentile, so you can see why this part was significant to Luke. This is why he wanted to share this. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about their son, Jesus. Now, wouldn't you marvel, too, if you walked into church, and for us it would be like the day of our, our child's baptism or their dedication or whatever rituals you've been through when they were that age. You walk into church, and, and imagine this elderly man takes your son, takes your daughter into their hands. And it's not creepy. It's not like, who's taking my kid? But they have this like unexplainable wisdom and authority. And they look into the eyes of your child and say, this child is going to do great things. That's what happened. And so they were marveling at this, but the story goes on. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed the whole family. And he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And so what we have is is a message that basically says your son is going to grow up and do great things, but it's going to also come at a great price. And it isn't just going to be a great price to him, but Mary, this is going to come at a great price to you too. Now parents in the room, wouldn't it have been appropriate if, if at about this point somebody said the same thing to you? Maybe, maybe not right at the first like day or two of being a parent, maybe, maybe not even in the first week, but after about 30, 40 days, wouldn't it have been right that somebody would have said this to you as you begin to realize at that point that parenting requires sacrifice? I know my wife and I, and it was about that point, we looked at each other and we're like, my goodness, we love our child, but this is terrible. <laughs> like, there's so much, I mean, I, and I, I mean that, I love my kids, and we did, but at the same time, I don't even want to say that, I'm glad you're laughing, because we realized we were feeling the same thing, you know? You just start to get the fact that this is going to require a lot. You're, the bills are starting to come in the mail, you're not getting any sleep, you're thinking about all of the things that are going to happen in that child's future. Jesus will do great things. Things his parents can't even imagine that he's going to do, but it's going to come at a great cost to him. And in turn, Simeon says, that is going to be a great cost to Mary, his mother. Now, we know that maybe one of the reasons he looks specifically to Mary is that Joseph isn't going to be around at the time when Jesus dies on the cross, but Mary would. 
She would be there right through it all. She would see the spear piercing her son's side as a sword pierces through her soul. I can only imagine what that might have felt like. My wife, Alyssa, and I were totally hooked on this TV show. It's on NBC. This is us. How many of you? Any other fans in here? Okay, good. There's several several of you. We're actually thinking about starting a support group after each episode. We're just going to cry. There's, there's no curriculum. We're just going to get together. We're just going to ball. I mean, it just, just draws you in. Now, if you're not watching it, I'll kind of give you a little bit of background. It, it, it's a drama, and, and it tells the story of Jack and Rebecca Pearson. They're there on the left. And their three children, Kevin, Kate, and Randall. Uh, Rebecca was pregnant with triplets. She lost one of them in childbirth, but then Randall on the right here was left at the hospital, was born on the very same day, and they adopted him, and they took him home, and that's the very beginning of their life. And it's this this unique story that, that bounces between the different seasons of their life journey. And so what I mean is like one minute, Jack and Rebecca are dating. They're like really young, and, and Jack is is picking up. He's just got back from Vietnam, all this kind of stuff. Then they're, they're, they're bouncing forward, and the kids are being born. And then the next scene, they're teenagers. And another scene, their kids are adults themselves, and they have their own children. But what I think is most appealing to it, and the whole story, to me at least, is just how honest the storyline is. It's still Hollywood, but they don't shy away from the broken parts of life and family. So Jack, for example, there on the left, he is the beloved husband to Rebecca. Like, if you're a husband watching this, you're like, I want to be more like Jack for my wife as you watch this. It's just it's this beautiful story. He's, he's a hero to his three children, and he tragically passes away when they're just in high school. And it's just the most horrible thing. A crock pot starts on fire in, in, their, uh, in their kitchen. And he runs back into the house to save the family dog. And it's smoke that eventually takes his life. And his death forever changes the life trajectory of his three kids and his wife. And you see that from the very beginning of the show. He and his, his wife, they, they build up this fairy tale love story that they have between the two of them, and it's complete with these plans to grow old together and to do all of these wonderful things. And, and that it all gets cut short when he dies, and, and she eventually moves on. She even marries his best friend, and that sounds like a wonderful fairy tale in itself. But every time they go to that scene, you can see in her eyes that it's just never quite the same. And then you have the three kids. You've got Kate, who, who ends up embarking on this lifelong struggle with her weight. You've got Kevin here. He's in the middle there next to his sister, Kate. He's, he's terribly attractive. He's a terribly successful, famous actor. But it becomes clear that his underlying motivation is just to, to try to get over losing his father. And as a result, his relationships are a mess. His father was an alcoholic. He, too, turns to alcohol to ease the pain. Randall on the right here, he seems to be the one. He's got it all together. He, too, is, is good-looking. He's very successful in his vocation. He's got a beautiful wife, three beautiful daughters. Two of them are biological. One is adopted through foster care. It's like this, this picture-perfect American family. But in the second season, he experiences a nervous breakdown. You realize he struggles with some kind of anxiety. In season three, when everything on the outside of their house seems to be going well... 
you find that he and his wife almost get divorced. And so I think about that story. And I think about our lives, and I think about what, what Simeon said to, to Mary and Joseph. This child is destined, and at the same time, a sword is going to pierce your own soul. Like, that's life, isn't it? That's life. The highs can be so high and wonderful. The lows can be so deep and painful. And, and this is us gets that. They try to communicate that message. And that's the message that Jesus' parents are left with that day in the temple from Simeon. And then it says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 40, right after that, it says, After that, the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And Luke fast-forwards and says, Now I'm going to tell you a story 12 years later, when Jesus is 12, verse 41, it said, Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, that's on the cusp of becoming an adult, they went up to the festival according to the custom, and after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, and then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Now, I read that, and I go, I'm not perfect, but at least I checked the minivan before I got out of the driveway, right? <laughs> but that's, that's not helpful. That's, that's not helpful because in this situation, here's the deal. Everybody was going to Jerusalem for the Passover which meant everyone from your town, your entire family, they would all caravan together. And Jesus is 12. And so the parents would probably walk with the parents, and the cousins would walk with the cousins. And, and he's 12, he's old enough, he's been on this road many times before. This isn't something that suggests that his parents were unusual or, or, or were not responsible or anything like that. But it says in verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. That even though he's on the cusp of adulthood, he's still not an adult. He's 12 years old. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. Can you imagine? Three days. No cell phones. You can't call the police to go out and look because you've got to walk there. All of this. They finally found him. And they found him sitting among the teachers, listening and asking them questions. And everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother, in a very motherly, fatherly way, said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Your father and I. Now, what is anxiety? Anxiety is fear on overdrive. And of course they were afraid. Of course they were anxious. They lost their son for three days. And here's how Jesus answers. He says, he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, wait a minute. Now, Luke put all this together, and it's orderly for a reason. You've got to look at the order and say, God, what are you trying to tell us here? It says up here in the verse before, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. When Mary says, your father and I have been anxiously searching, who is your father? Anybody? Joseph, right? right? God's not looking for Jesus, but you know, you're good Christians, right? You've been in church for a long time. You're smarter than the average person that's reading Luke for the first time. And so when Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Whose house is he talking about? Anybody? God's, right? Because Jesus is... God's son. God is his father. See, you know that, 
But the person who's reading this is just starting to grapple with this tension. And tension is exactly what the gospel writer is trying to create. He's trying to create a tension between Jesus having earthly parents and Jesus having a heavenly father. And it says this in verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, now I don't think I would have understood it either. And the only reason we understand it is because last week we read the verse that kind of makes this a lot clearer. If you go to, to, to Luke chapter 3, I think we read it in Matthew last week, but it's in three out of the four Gospels. It's 18 years later. He's 30 years of age, and he is baptized. Jesus is baptized, and the heavens open up, and Luke 3.22 says that God said from the heavens, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, who's speaking out of the clouds? Anybody? God, right? But then Luke does this thing again, the next verse. He says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. There's the tension again, right? Like here, he's God's son. Here, he's Joseph's son. And friends, the reason Luke is pointing out this tension is because this tension is good news. It was good news for Jesus' parents. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. It's good news for every parent in the room, and it's good news for every child that has been parented. When Jesus was 12 and was lost for three days, Joseph and Mary did not relinquish their God-given responsibility as Jesus' earthly parents. They anxiously searched for him. Luke affirms their love in the way they reacted when their son was gone, but he's also God's son. He's also God's son. And as he gets older and older, the truth of him being God's son is going to slowly become more and more significant than every other relationship that Jesus has, even the relationship with his earthly parents. And this is good news. And Mary knows that it's good news because it says she said in verse 51, or she felt, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She treasured this in her heart. She got it. Now, why did she get it? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because she lost her son for three days, and not only did she find him, but in that moment she realized he was okay the whole time. Like, wouldn't there be such a, such a sigh of relief if you knew not only that you found your child, but that they were okay? That God was actually watching over her son for those three days? I don't know. Maybe that's why it was comforting. Maybe it was comforting because she, she remembered what the angel said when, when he was conceived 12 years ago. Maybe it's because she thought back on what happened when he was a month and 10 days old and this old man Simeon said all of those things over their son that he would be salvation itself, but he would also have an indescribably difficult life, that he would pay, face challenges that neither she nor Joseph would ever be able to protect him from. All of that would be devastating, wouldn't it? <laughs> It would be devastating for you to be, to be told that your child is, is, is a wonderful future and at the same time is, is going to come up against indescribable pain and suffering. That would be hopeless unless Jesus has a father in heaven that's more powerful than his parents. And parents, because of Jesus, I want you to know that your children have a father in heaven who is more powerful than you. That's what Luke wants us to see. 
That's what the Apostle Paul, who was a co-laborer with Luke, wants us to see. In Romans 8, he says this. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That's the promise, right? Like when we baptize our children, it's not the water. It's the Spirit in the water. When we dedicate our children to God, it's God's work inside of them, and it's God's work inside of us. And Paul says this is what that looks like. It looks like being led by the Spirit to become children of God. And the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Being a child of God takes away your fear. The spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The word Abba, right there, it's not some weird Greek word they decided not to translate in that particular instance. It's not even really a word. You know what that word is? That's the sound that a young child makes when they come up to their father. I have a 17-month-old in my house, and you know how he refers to me? Da. Da. You know how he refers to Alyssa? Ma. Ma. You know, if you really want something, it's ma, 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 you know, that kind of a thing. But it's, that's the sound. And so if I were to write this out like Paul does, if I wanted to do a literal translation into English, I wouldn't say Abba, I'd say Dada. Not even daddy, because it's not that close yet. Young child coming before their father. What Paul says is that the Spirit of God welcomes us into that kind of relationship with him. That not only is he our almighty father in heaven, but he is so close to us that we can come before him and we can say, da. We can say, Abba. We can come into his presence. And we do not have to live in fear again. And it doesn't mean we're not going to be afraid, folks. But when we are afraid, the spirit of God that welcomes us in as children of God is going to testify to our spirit is going to say to us on the inside, you are God's child. And parents, I believe that same spirit can say the same thing to you. That same spirit can say the same thing to you about your child when you're in a situation that you cannot control for your kids. I have lost track of how many times I've prayed with parents. And I've prayed for a situation that is out of that parent's control. And the first thing I come to, because it is a great comfort to me, and it might sound weird to you, is that God loves your child more than you do. God created that child. God loves that child. And parents, there's going to come a day where you're not going to be able to protect your child from the dangers that they face. We just can't be with them, can we? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Even if we plan the best case scenario, our hope would be that they would outlive us, which by nature means for a portion of their life, they're going to have to do life without us, which means... Just like Jesus, they need to start now. And you and I as parents in the room need to start now by relinquishing that control and trusting in the Heavenly Father who loves them the most. Dr. Tim Kimmel, he wrote, um, wrote the book Grace-Based Parenting. He said this, he said, Fear-based parenting is the surest way to create intimidated children. Fear-based parenting 
is the surest way to create intimidated children. It's not that we're not afraid, but Paul says in Romans that when we become sons and daughters of God, we do not have to fear because the Spirit of God is with us. And maybe more importantly than that, the Spirit of God is with your children. But parents, it's not just about your children. It's also about you. And I learned this a couple of years ago. I was preaching at another church. We did a a, a kind of a round-robin thing here in the county and, and we were preaching through Philippians, and, and I was reminded of this story that I, I shared with them. It was when my oldest son, Jacob, he's going to be 11 now, and this story came from when he was four. And so I'm, I'm starting to just feel a little old as I'm thinking about this. And, 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 and I still vividly remember the story, though, and I think I always will. We were, we were on a, as a hike, we were on a family, as a family, we were on a hike um, down the White River Trail. How many of you spend any time out on the White River Trail? Beautiful trails between Elkhorn and Burlington and, and Lake Geneva. And, and we were walking down the trail. I don't remember where exactly we were, but, but we were walking. And Jake was four, and he's got little legs. And so he got tired. He wanted to go up on my shoulders. And so I put him up on my shoulders, and that was good because then he wasn't complaining about being tired. And we could just keep walking. And, and I don't remember what happened, but he was on my shoulders. And we approached this bridge, and we were on the bridge. And I don't know if I had an itch. I don't know if I tripped. I don't know what happened, but I dropped him. And, and I literally, just, he just fell. And thankfully, not over the bridge. Like, my goodness. Like, he fell on this side of the bridge, but he fell head first all the way. I mean, four years old, little guy on my shoulders, head first onto the ground. And parents in the room, you know that horrible pause when your child gets really hurt, that they're so hurt that they can't even make a noise for what feels like an eternity. And that's exactly what happened. And when he did make a noise, he screamed as loud as he could, a scream that we had probably never heard at that point. And he ran immediately away from me and into to the arms of my wife, Alyssa. Now, Alyssa checked him, and, and thankfully, he was okay. And he calmed down, but he still, in the moment that he still had tears dripping down his face, and I just wanted to, like, pick him up. I felt so bad. And, and I went like this, like, to, to him, and he's grabbing onto Alyssa. And every time I go to grab him, he grabs more onto Alyssa. He's like, I'm not going after you. And, and he looked at me, four years old, tears dripping down his eyes. And he said, Daddy... You dropped me. And it was total seriousness. It was like in the form of a question. Daddy, you dropped me. Like like in that moment, he was trying to comprehend that for four years of his little life, that I have been one of those people in his life that has always taken care of his needs, that has always been there that has always been safe. When I put him on my shoulders, he had no question of his safety. He went right up there. If I didn't hold on to him, if I went like this, he would have done this too because he felt so safe and secure. And then I dropped him and he fell. And so he looked at me and he asked me, Daddy, you dropped me. And I had to get down and say, Jacob, I love you so much. And I'm just sorry. I'm so sorry that I dropped you. I made a mistake. I'm really sorry. It's all I could say. And, and if you've met Jacob now, especially as his personality has grown up, you're going to get this. For the next year, he doesn't let things go easy. It was every once in a while. He got over it, but I'd be like maybe making him cereal for breakfast or putting him to bed or giving him a bath, and it would just pop into his head. He'd look at me and say, Daddy, do you remember that day you dropped me? 
We don't talk about that, son. (laughs) It's not what I said, but that's what I wanted to, right? (laughs) What it taught me was that I can do everything in my power to provide for my son for the rest of my life and all of my kids, and I will. (laughs) I was raised that way. There were great examples in my family and my wife's family. That way, I will do that, but... I am not their father in heaven. I will make mistakes. There will be more moments. There have been more moments where I have dropped them figuratively or literally. I don't have what it takes. I'm a parent. And I don't have what it takes to pick up my kid in every instance. And so for their benefit and my own, they need to know, Jacob needs to know, that there is only one being in the whole cosmos that can always be completely trusted to never drop you, and that is God. So that as I raise him and as I raise the rest of my children, my hope is the hope that Luke places out, the example that we see in Jesus, that as their relationship with God becomes more important, that it would become more important than every other relationship in their life, even their relationship with their father and their mother, just like it was for Jesus, so that like Mary... That might mean for us as parents as we face moments where our kids suffer, when we're not in control, even when we feel our very soul being pierced with a sword, we do not need to fear the sword because God is our Father in heaven and we belong to him and so do our kids. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, easy for me (laughs) to preach this with boldness because it isn't a questionable part of of what we believe as Christians. You are our Heavenly Father. We know this. But the rubber hits the road for those of us who fear for our children. I know it does. It does for me. We want so bad to have control. We want so bad to provide. We want so bad to make the right decisions. And so, God, I pray for the parents in this room. God, I pray for all of us who have dropped our kids, figuratively or literally. God, I pray that we would see those moments as opportunities to show your grace. That while our kids may need us, that we do need to be responsible parents. We need to anxiously search for our kids when they're lost at the very same time when we drop them. Maybe an equally important message is to show them that we are not perfect. That as parents, we are fallible. That as parents, we are weak. That as parents, we cannot provide for every need for our child. For those of us who are children of imperfect parents, which is everyone in the room, we pray that we would see that truth in our own lives as well. In the places where maybe our parents drop the ball, where we feel scarred and broken, that we would realize that we have a heavenly Father. And that Jesus came to show us what that perfect relationship might look like. And that as we enter deeper into that relationship with you, God, it will actually have the effect of drawing us closer to one another. As we share your love that we first received from you and as we share the grace that we have been given. God, these things like forgiveness and redemption and 
healing that come from you as our Father in heaven are gifts that we can bestow onto those we love, but only if we first turn to you. And so, God, we pray. We pray that you would be with us now. And we pray that you would show us that you're with us as we gather around your table. As we open our eyes, we remember what you, Jesus, did with the disciples 33 years or so into your life. Many years after that day when you were 12 in the temple, on the night that you would be betrayed, where you would face what Simeon prophesied back when you were just a month old, you took bread with your disciples and you broke it and said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. After the supper, you took the cup of blessing. You gave thanks and you gave it to drink and said, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. As often as we eat this bread and as often as we drink from this cup, what I want you to picture this morning is what Paul wrote in Romans, that the Spirit of God speaks these truths to us. I could preach this to you all day long and you still won't get it, but the Spirit of God will comfort you. You do not need to live in fear. Parents, children alike, you do not need to live in fear because we have a Heavenly Father and He lives in us. If you believe that to be true, no matter what your background, who you are, where you've been, where you're going, I want to encourage you right now to surrender to that by opening up your hands. As we open up our hands, we surrender our hearts as we invite Jesus to be with us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As our ushers come forward and dismiss you by row, we welcome you because God welcomes you. Come. Come to the table.